Tonight's sermon is based on Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, the I am. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears attend to the sound of my pleading for mercy. If you, the I am, closely watched our crookedness, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so you may be feared. I wait for the I am. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul for the Lord, more than watchmen for sunrise, more than watchmen for sunrise. O Israel, hope in the I am, because with the I am is loving kindness. With him is superabundant redemption, and he will ransom Israel from every crookedness. This is the word of the Lord. For the, uh, for the Advent season, I'm supposed to be following a schedule of hope, peace, joy, or something like that. But I got it all messed up. But anyway, this week we're doing hope. Last week we did peace. And of course, I am off schedule. That's just me. I'm off schedule. I'm always off schedule. This is part of my character, part of my personality. So, we're going to look at hope. So uh, this text, this text, are you guys familiar with the, uh, there's a, a movement, I don't know if you've heard of it, uh, called the, the Long-Termist, have you heard about this movement? The Long-Termist movement. So it was kind of kicked off by a, by a professor named McCaskill, and what he, what he, was, what he wrote a book called about the future generations, what do we owe the future? Elon Musk really signed up for this idea, so did Peter Thiel and a number of others, Jan Thielen. And, and these very, very wealthy, very powerful men bought, bought into this idea of the long-termist view. What the long-termist view claims is this. There's probably, we can guess, maybe 109 billion people have lived since uh, man became man, in their estimation. Eight billion people live today. But let's look in the future. Let's look, let's look a million years down the future. Let's look a billion years in the future. How many people are going to be born between today and a billion years from now? Trillions. I mean, there'll be trillions, if we're still around as a race or a species, there'll be trillions of us. So what they do is, is let's, let's just do a little math here. Let's do a calculus. Let's figure out what's important. Let's figure out what our moral responsibility is. Let's chart a course for where we are today against those, that vast amount of humanity that's coming. And what, they're, what they claim is, is, look, we need to start making decisions that, that, that are for the trillions that are coming. We don't have to worry about disease. We don't have to worry about the problems of world hunger. What are a few million people against the long-term trillions that are coming? Oh, don't, don't worry, don't worry. Actually, if we put it in the balance, you know what we can do? <laughs> Let's do a calculus for the value of Carol or Jack or me. And let's see how we weigh against the trillions that are coming. In the estimation of the long-termists, Jack and me and Carol, well, we don't stand a chance, do we? Because that calculus works against us. Well, obviously, the trillions coming are more important than I am, aren't they? And so what happens is, is you can even imagine, maybe you can just imagine just a, just a little step, like a little logical step from this, and you're into a world of horror. You're, in a, you're into a world of horror here, right? Because, because if we're going to build our hope or manufacture hope today by bargaining against the trillions that are coming, and we can then make up a warrant, we can, we can morally justify the elimination of a billion people. Why not? Why not? 
The math works. The math works. The math says, you and I are worthless. <laughs> you know, it's funny, you know, even the 20th century, even the 20th century, those kinds of those kinds of perspectives, those kinds of macro views of time, you know, and the idea that history is marching in some thesis, antithesis, synthesis, and that the classes are in combat with one another, and it doesn't matter if millions die. That's how you justify the slaughter of 10 million, 20 million, you name, pick your number. The 20th century has seen many people die based on the hopes of systems like this. But here's the weird thing. Whenever man tries to craft hope for himself, it just becomes a story of horror. That's the way it always comes. It, just, it, turns, into, into, it turns into a horror show. It, it, turns into, it just turns into this terrible, terrible thing. You know, long-termists are, are scary. And, and, and this kind, it's catching on. It's become extremely popular amongst the wealthy and the powerful to take this perspective. And this perspective is extremely dangerous. Think about what you could justify. Think about what you could justify with a long-term view like that. Now, of course, it only works if you can claim to know the future, right? You have to have a really clear idea of the future. And of course, the vanity, the pretension, the arrogance, the conceit of these men, because not anybody in tech, not one person has been able to predict anything yet. <laughs> has been able to, with their algorithms, predict anything of the future. But yeah, there's something about the long-termists. It makes my skin crawl. It makes me feel funky. It's like... These moral systems, these attempts to come up with a, a vision of hope for the future and all that technology can deliver and create for us. Well, we got Neuralink in the meantime. But I'll tell you, when I hear a man talk about long-termism like that and have that perspective and then offer me a Neuralink tap into some computer through my brain, I just, I don't know, I, I don't trust it. I am wary because their hopes all lead to horror. Now, what about our hopes? And I, I want to talk about Christian and biblical hope tonight, today, tonight because it's here. It's here in, our, in this wonderful, wonderful poem. And we're going to take a look at this poem and, and, and kind of excavate out its, its story of hope for us, its, its offering of a true hope in God. It's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. The language is beautiful. And, and so we'll take a look at the language and structure real quick before we get into the poem. Because remember, language and structure are a part of how a poet tries to communicate their truth. And we'll see that the actual structure, and it's a rather linear structure, is structured across four stanzas. And I've, 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 I've actually separated them out in, in the translation that I did. This is my translation from the Hebrew of this text. And it's a little bit challenging because the words for hope in this text, wait and watch, they're all the same words. They all mean the same things. When the Bible says hope in Hebrew, it's the same word as wait. And it also has the same connotation as watch. Even though there are numerous words for hope, every one of them in Hebrew is about watching and waiting. We kind of like that. Ugh. I feel like there's something I can invite in that. Hope, as a modern sentiment in English, is nothing more than a sentiment and an attitude. I hope so. I 
hope it's a nice day. I, I hope for what can happen. I, I just hope so. But that's not the Bible's hope at all. No, the Bible talks about a hope in. A hope in him. And when that biblical word for hope, it's so different than the English word, even the Greek, elpidus. It doesn't, that none of those words work because the Hebrew word is the word for waiting. That's a hope that says what? What I'm waiting for is coming. I'm waiting. It's, a cert, it's an expectat, expectant hope. It's a hope that's leaning in. It's a hope that's active. It's a hope that's living. And that's so much for the language of the text. Take a look with me at the structure of it. And it's a wonderful linear structure. Now, sometimes Hebrew poems are circular. They have circles. Remember we looked at the chiasms? Well, this is not a circular poem. This is a linear poem. Look at the title of the poem of Psalm 130. It's a song of ascents. So it's a very linear, very linear sense. Now, it's a song of ascending. So it makes sense that where does the, where does the poem start? Out of the depths. You get, you get, you get the, there's a wonderful progression. The poet is taking you on a journey. Now, if you're going to Jerusalem, by the way, by the way there's a lot of walking uphill. So this picture, this picture of a song of ascents, became part of how the people would worship going to Jerusalem. You see? So these poems became a part of the people's worship. Now, look at the first stanza. Look at the, actually, there's an actual wonderful, very simple message that the poet is communicating. What, where does it begin? I'm in a really bad place. <laughs> I'm, a, I, I'm low. I, I'm, I'm at the bottom. Isn't it funny that 3,000 years later, when somebody says they're at the bottom, we still get it? We still, it's the same meanings, the same, same ideas, the same images come to us. I'm at the bottom. What's that second stanza? Verses, two and, verses 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4. I'm at the bottom, but I know God's character. I know about God. I know what kind of God he is. What's the third standard? I am ready, because I'm so low, so I'm down, and I know who God is, I'm ready to double down. I am ready to be sold out. Soul, body, and soul. To wait for that God. To wait on them. And finally, what's the, third, what's the fourth standard? The fourth, the, kind of the conclusion of this ascent. Well, it's explosive. He's commanding others. He's calling people to, to know God. He's claiming redemption and ransom and, and hesed, loving kindness. And all of a sudden, the language of God's covenant and eternal love bursts out of his mouth. He began low and he ends in an exalted place. It's kind of cool. And I, so I think this, as we read this, we have to have that in mind. Because it is the game, it is the goal, it is the purpose of this little poem to teach you and me how we ascend. And what the path looks like to knowing God. And what, those, what parts of that path are. It's kind of precious. So let's see what we can excavate it together and what we can learn together as we go through this wonderful little poem. Let's begin with the first, this first little stanza. It's very simple, and he probably doesn't take a whole lot to understand it. I do notice two things, though. And first is that out of the depths kind of language, this is the language of being in the water. Uh, do you remember when uh, Corey was preaching about, if you haven't heard this sermon, you're missing out. It's, it's recorded. It's an extraordinarily good message. But it was, about the, it was about being in the boat. 
Okay? And in the boat, and the boat's going crazy, and there's a storm, and Jesus is in the boat, and we're in the boat, and, and all the stuff, we're in the boat, and God's in the boat with us. This person has fallen overboard. This is the person who's fallen out of the boat. <laughs> this is the person who is sinking. Sinking. Um, it's so funny. This is such a powerful picture. The movies use it all the time. Uh, how many times do you see this in the movie? It's kind of inky. The, the, the water's always slightly green. There's always a light up above, and the person's kind of slowly falling and descending in the water. You can only, it's almost always seen. It's a black background, and there's always like a hand reaching up like that as the light goes away. And how many times have you seen this in a movie? How many times have we seen this played out as a visual, a visual picture, sometimes of somebody's death or where they're, what's happening to them emotionally, spiritually? What's the riddle here? What's, 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 what's the cause? Do we have, a, have an idea? Is this merely depression? Is this anxiety? Is this fear? We do know. He's pleading for mercy. He has a concern that he might not even be heard. He is descending so, far, so fast. He's saying, Lord, hear my voice. But he's pleading for mercy. So these depths, what are these depths? These are the depths of guilt. These are the places that doing certain bad things will do to you. What, where certain things, certain evils that your heart commits will, draw, will take you. Where sin, what sin does to us. We know this is what it is. In particular, there are three words for sin in the Old Testament. Rebellion. I think, I think that the, I think the ESV translates that sin. Uh, the second sin is to fail. And uh, the ESV translates that transgression. And then the third word is to be bent inside. It comes from the root to be bent or twisted when you bend or twist something. And that's this word. And the SV has a very poor translation of it. It's iniquity. And I don't know if any of us, if anybody even said we were full of iniquity, we'd even feel bad about it. Well, I mean, it doesn't even sound that bad. Iniquity sounds like a cool word almost. We don't use words like iniquity in this generation. It's not any, it doesn't punch. It doesn't have any power. Oh, but the Hebrew does. And I was just sitting there. Why is he crying out? And you get the sense. There's a, there is a depth you get. The depth of suffering when you're faced with the kind of man or woman you are inside. You're bent. How do you unbend yourself? It leads to despair, doesn't it? For him, it's led to despair. It's led to, it's led to, it's led to some trajectory of free fall, of, of death for him. He's terrified. And we know why. All right. What can we learn from this first stanza as we look at this? That we're being invited into an out-of-the-depths kind of hope. We're being invited to a, to a hope that comes out of depths. Uh, this is very precious to me with my struggle with depression. Because I just, and and I just, oh, I love this idea of a God who re reaches into our depths. But let's, what does this teach us? This is the place to start with God. All of y'all, there's no other way to start with God. There's no, no, there's no other way to go. No, there isn't any other way 
to go to the Lord Most High or to know Him other than to humble yourself as a sinner in His presence about who you are. Sorry, guys, it's the way it is. There is no intimacy. There is no journey. There is no ascent unless there's first what? A descent. I don't know about you, but that sounds like good news to me. Because there's a beauty here. You don't have to get a little better to go to him. Do you? You don't have to, whoa, 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 I'm in the desk, but i got to turn it around. Like when you're really depressed or when you're really sad, or you're really grieving, the point here is that you don't even have to figure it. You just have to cry out, ah, help, help. There's no preparation here. This is God's mercy. And he loves to meet us when we cry out from the depth, the depths of our own despair about our own weakness and brokenness and frailty and, and warp. Don't you just feel warped sometimes? But one more little thing I want to teach about that. It's a beautiful picture, though. Mm. I just wrote, you know what it reminds me of? Isn't it funny that Jesus begins all of his preaching with the same statement? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, it's the same thing, isn't it? What kind of God, what kind of God have, we, have we met? And where does he give his hope? And out of the depths places. Praise him. But I thought something else in this. And I think that this is so important. That you should pray, you should be praying. You should be asking God. You should be seeking conviction. This journey, this journey, these four steps, this journey of upward mobility. So many of us are resisting going to zero. We're resisting, we resist knowing things and seeing things about ourselves we don't like. But oh, what a blessing from God when he gives us the gift of conviction. I don't know why this guy suddenly got to the point where he realized that he was out of his depths, that his character had doomed him. I don't know what he realized. I don't know whether it was something he said or did. or You know, and he, there are things you all do, we all do, that reveal us in a big way. And we see, oh gosh, it's who I, I don't want to be that person. He had that moment. Pray for those moments. They're gifts from God. To set you on this course of discovery about who he is, who his love is, what Christ is doing on the cross. Pray for conviction. It's kind of a weird thing to pray for, you know? But in a sense, all you're praying for is the clearest vision of who you are, the truest truth about what is in you. That's why David's so insistent with Jesus, with God. See if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Those are the same statement, right? I want to be everlasting with you and I want to see the, they're the same thing. For if we had no God, we have to get rid of grievous ways and we want to hate them and we want to get rid of them. Mm. Pray, seek, plead for this suffering to enter your life. Because there's life when you realize your sin. What's the life? How does life come there? By knowing who God is. The next part of this, the next part that he goes into, this next stanza, is says, this is a hope built on God. This is that wow moment. This is, it's this, this is our God kind of hope. Let's take a look at it. 
If you, the I am, closely watched our crookedness. By the way, I translated that closely watched because it is the word watch that's being used in the other parts of the poem. For some reason, the ESV puts mark there. That's not the word. And the reason I think this is attractive to me is I want you to hear the poet's craft. How the poet is, he, he, he's, put, he's making God watch and you watch at the same time. But God doesn't watch in the way that he's calling you to watch. And there's a wonderful play there, you see. And, and it helps you remember these ideas and think about them and ponder them. What's the difference between my watching and his watching? And ah, oh, but they're the same words. And they invite us into a coherent an almost beautiful picture of how, of the, of the persons involved, how our Father is, our God is a person, and he is a watcher. It's like he's, just like, like he's calling us to be watching. What's, what, what, let, me, let me keep reading. Uh, the I am closely watched, you the I am closely watched your crookedness, Lord, who could stand? So verse 3 is saying what? You're so holy... Everybody who reads their Bible, he would have read his Bible. We know he, he lost the word of God. We're going to find that out in the next stanza. But if you read your Bible, what's the one thing you know about God? He's absolutely holy. Exodus 34-7 hovers over the Old Testament. It's one of, it's, Exodus 34-7 is the most, probably the most important text in the Old Testament. Because God is proclaiming his name to Moses. And this is what he says. I forgive transgression, sin, and iniquity, rebellion, failure, and crookedness. Same words. But I will by no means clear the guilty. But with you there is forgiveness, so you may be feared. That sounds like a different statement about God than the first one, doesn't it? The first one is saying, well, if you were paying attention, I'd fry. And then the next one's saying... Yeah, but you know, you're really, really sweet, and that's why I'm okay. That's why I'm actually afraid of you. That's just as we'd be feared. So what's, what's going on here? What's going on in this, quite, in this tight little turnaround in these few verses? Well, what the poet is doing is exploring the contrary parts of our Father's nature. Because when we see, when we begin to get a picture of the fullness of God's attributes, justice, love, and mercy, um, anger, compassion, peace. Oh, they're all together. He's experiencing that in the poem. He's like, I know that if you were paying attention, there was no way I'd make this. But I know there's a, you're God of forgiveness. And that just, call, that just causes me to fear. Now this word fear just becomes very interesting right here. This becomes that fear that's in the Proverbs. This becomes this reverential awe. This isn't servile terror crawling or crawling in a corner. This is, this is that fear that, that you know, like you have when you're clock rock climbing. Like you look down 3,000 feet and realize, you know, you don't mess with that. <laughs> you don't mess with that. You don't mess with that. Pull up this a little bit. You see, what I think was happening here is that as, as the poet grows to know more and more about God, He's realizing that there's these tensions in who he is. And that causes him to fear God. To have an awe-inspired vision. Uh, he's convinced God's God of love. He, he loves God. He knows God. He says, I have trusted in God's steadfast love. Mm -mm. But he knows that there's something about God he doesn't 
have under his thumb. Like, he does not have God in a box. He doesn't have God figured out. He doesn't have God because God is bigger than his categories. He's trying to understand forgiveness and, and justice, and he realizes that this God somehow does forgiveness and justice at the same time. And that wigs him out a little bit, and that should wig everybody out a little bit, because such a God cannot be easily understood. Look, look, if you think you've got God by the tail, the tiger's going to bite you. You don't you grab God by the tail. You don't, none of us have him that way. I come here to proclaim him. I say everything this book says because I'm so afraid of him. And I, I'm in awe of him. How dare I not say what he has said about himself, you see? How dare I? And so what the, the poet is wrestling here, what the poet seems to be wrestling with right now, I think, and it really gives voice and, and character to this moment, to his statement of fear, is he's seeing how big God really is. And that's what you and I need. When we're out of the depth, in the depths. When we need hope in the depths, we need a God greater than depths. You see? We need a God who breaks categories. And can come. Now that's scary. Uh, something about the God of the Bible is totally and completely uncontrollable. <laughs> we have no, there's no way to get God wriggling on a ping. I can't set him as a diagnostic thing. I want to see what he is. I'm going to nail him. We tried nailing him. It doesn't work. He rises from the dead. You got it just doesn't work. Nobody's got a finger on God. Okay, so what does this text then invite us to do? I, don't, I want you to see this. Oh, actually, look, oh, wait, I forgot, I forgot this. This is kind of fun. There's another place, my, this, this premise I'm making that he's struggling with the different parts of God. It actually comes out in the names. Look at the names. This is really kind of cool. In the, in the ESV, each stanza begins with Lord capitalized, all the letters capitalized, and then Lord in lowercase. Now, Lord, all capitalized, I have translated, I am. And that name, I am, that's the name given to Moses, I am. We you know what that is? That's the personal love name of God for his people. It's the one he gives you because, look, because you, I really love you, I'm going to give you my love name. It's our name, so you know, it's my pet name. It's your name for me that's the most tender. It's the one that represents all of my love for my people. But he has other names. What's the other, what's that other word? You know what the other word is, don't you, brother? Adonai. Adonai. St. Clayton is Hebrew. Adonai. Well, that's an interesting, every stanza begins, he talks to the I am, and then he follows, look in your text, he follows with the word Lord or Adonai. He goes back and forth in the first three ones. Why? I think he's exploring in his poetry the difference between the God who is personally known and the God who's the great master and king. You see, those two parts of God are in him, aren't they? The God who I call out to, Abba, Papa, and the God I fall flat in my face before in holy reverential awe, lest I have ever offended the majesty on high. You see those two parts of God? They're all over the scripture. They're all over the Bible. They're right here in this text, even in the way he uses the names. And look at the final stanza. When he starts talking about plenteous, superabundant grace, redeeming love, and ransom. 
Oh, it's I am both times. It's the tender name both times. Because something has changed by the last stanza as he stands in the hope he's been, been, been searching through. You know what I want for this? And I guess my advice is, learn as much about the God of the Bible as you can. I mean, just learn everything you can about him in the scriptures. Try to carry the very breadth of who he is. Because only when we begin to do this does the logic of looking at his greatness and that coming to fear make any sense. You have to, and I, I don't know how to tell you to get that big view, except to be in your Bibles. Be reading. Because you meet him there. You meet him as he is. You get to know him. You get to know the things you don't like about him. He becomes a person you can have a relationship with instead of an abstract idea that you think about. So, let's look at the next stanza then. Let's follow the progression. I'm in a bad place. I've got this out-of-the-depths hope. Because if I look at my God, who's so much greater than even my categories for him, I, I see that I am, I am loved. I'm forgiven. What's his response to those two truths? That he was in the depths, and he is loved by a God he can barely contain? What is his response? Oh, take all of me. He's lazy. That, it is weird. My soul, why does your soul wait? Why do you talk about your soul? Why would you even talk about your soul wait? What's the point? He's saying, every atom of my being now is right here waiting. Waiting, waiting. Be and it's almost as if to say, because nothing is more, it is more certain that you are coming than that the sun rises tomorrow. That's what he's saying. You think you all know how the sun works and how the earth works, and you're all darn sure it's going to come up tomorrow. Let me assure you. Let me encourage you. Pick up your eyes and look to your Savior. Look to him now because he is more certain than that. And that's what he's saying. He is throwing himself into God. My soul waits. My whole, oh, and then he does that wonderful Hebrew thing, right, where, where he repeats himself. Remember the shalom, shalom? And, and what, what, what does that repetition mean when he, when he repeats himself? It's a grammatical structure accentuating perfection. Total surrender. More. I am doubled down against those watchmen. I'm twice the watcher they are. I'm a, oh, and you know what this winds up being? This winds up defining for us waiting. And what this waiting, hopeful watching looks like. There's nothing passive about it. If you think that this is, this is, this is the idea, well, just let go and let God. And I, he should come sometime, right? Maybe, maybe he'll preach the rest of the sermon for me. I bet I would, that wouldn't be very helpful to you or, or to me. Because when I appear before him, let's ask, why, why, aren't you, why didn't you preach the gospel like you're supposed to? Look, I, I, uh, but there's something about this, this, this stanza, that the soul language and, 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 this, and, and, this, and the Hebrew grammar, repeat, repeat it. This is a sold out hope. Are you sold out? Are you sold out? Oh, 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 oh. Oh, but I hear more. 
We don't know if he's out of the depths here. We don't know. You know that? It doesn't say it lifted me out. It doesn't say, it doesn't say any of that. We don't know if he's lifted up or not. But we do know he has doubled down. Now, what I hear here is God calling us to trust his process when it comes to waiting and hoping and watching for his answers. Trust his process. Trust it implicitly. Because you can. There's a... All right, so I was, I was sharing this with uh, Corey and, and Ted. I want to share it with you all. It's really a precious teaching for me. God has this way of teaching us lessons. And one of the ways he teaches, disciples observe this. One of the ways, they, sometimes the disciples say things like this. Uh, Jesus says, are you guys leaving? And does anybody remember what, what I think it's Peter responds. Uh, where, where are we going to go? Where are we going to go? You alone have words of life. And then, and then in other, other pa- he, there's passages like that. And that's an odd, that's an odd thing to say. It, what, 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 if you could boil it down, what, he, what essentially the, the, the disciple saying there is, you know, we looked around, and you're the only one that's gone through. We've been, we've, we've, we've gone to the other cisterns. We, we've investigated the other messiahs. We, we've heard and seen the religious leaders of our age, and you're the only one. We've been through everything else. Well, that's a, that's a form of waiting and watching, I think. Even that. You know, you know what's funny? Adam had to do this. God taught Adam the same way. Do you remember how? God, God wanted to teach Adam that he, that, that he must cherish the woman he was going to give him. And he wants him to cherish marriage. He wanted him to cherish her. He wanted him to understand the, the value and the importance of what he was doing. So he sets up this little thought experiment, this little, this little event for, not a thought experiment, but I guess it kind of is. And then, and then it, it, so Adam gets a taxonomical, he gets this taxonomy charge. He's got to name all the animals, name all the animals, name all the animals. But the point of this procedure was what? Does anybody remember what the point of this whole procedure was? It was to teach Adam there was no substitute for the woman he was going to bring. So before the fall, God taught us by showing us how other things don't work. And he does it today. And what I hear in this wonderful poet is he is in he is trusting God's process now. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait and watch. And that, in fact, that is the joy of what I am called to do. I wonder what's coming. I wonder how good it's going to be. And that's his posture. He is trusting the process of God's work in his life. Because God's working you and me. Guess what it is? He teaches us to wait on him. Now, there's a whole bunch of reasons God does this. <laughs> we have demanding hearts. I want what I want, and I want it now. You know, that's why God makes you wait. He needs to teach what's in you. Reveal to you the things that you love to chase. Show you yet again how far you are from him, how in the depths you can get. So he can show you yet again his grace is greater than all your sin. Praise him. <laughs> Praise him. Get with the program.
God's hope program. You know what it is? It's waiting on him. Despite the circumstances and in the suffering and through it. I, uh, I wrote somewhere, I, was trying, I wanted to find what I wrote. Uh, it must not be important or God would have it right here. Let's get to the final point, the explosive hope. We get to stanza four, and the poet has taken us from this low point. We've ascended with him if, if we're following here. And actually, this process of discovery of our depths, discovery of God's nature, our, our doubling down in faith and trust on that process and his nature with us, what he's doing with us, leads to this final place. The final place. And what is the final place? The final place is now this knowing of God and this experience of him lifting me out of the depths is just busting out of me. It's busting out. He can't, it's, it's, this is overflow. Do you hear it? He can't stop. No, no, no. He's no longer, help. He's like, hope you. Hope. He's commanding. He's calling people to obedience. He's calling us. Having grasped that this is such a God and that wonder and his love for him in the depths, you can't stop now. Israel, hope in God. Hope in his word. You can trust it. Oh, it's, it's amazing. There's so much here. Actually, uh, actually, because the I am is loving kindness. No, hope in his words in the previous stanza, sorry. Because it's, it's loving kindness, superabundant redemption, and ransom. Uh, this is all the language. This is all the language that describes covenant love at the cross. <laughs> Look, you know what's amazing? This ancient Israelite, we don't know his name, he writes the Song of Ascent, and he describes his own existential crisis and spiritual longing, his discovery of God. He doubles down, and then he starts using language that describes Jesus. What did Jesus say? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so what God gives the poet who has ascended in his love of God is he gives him a vista. He gives him perspective from the mountaintop now. And this ancient poet, now he doesn't see Jesus, but he might as well have because these are the words that describe how God loves sinners at the cross. Super abundant redemption. Every sin, you see that word every, it's there. Every crookedness, every distortion, every deformity in us, fixed. And, and when, this, is, this is Holy Spirit work, right? This is, and the Holy Spirit can do this to you too. If you follow these processes, there are ways in which God puts you in a place where redemption sings. Where the superabundance of eternal love is like a vista, when you begin to see that the scale is off the charts, and you begin to explode. You just have to, he's just exploding with it. He can't contain it anymore. This is the centrifugal nature of the power and the spirit of God and the love of God coming out of a man. And, and, it, and this is what it does. And I don't know about you, but I want to hitch a ride on these four stanzas. I want to hitch a ride. I want this to happen to me. I want this to be me. 
Honestly, half the time it is. This is a little bit of a joke that some of the people who meet with me very early in the morning have, have thought was kind of funny. Corey's noticed it. I think Spencer's noticed it before. If you meet me around 7, 7.30, you may meet a horrible son of hell at that moment. <laughs> I am miserable in the morning sometimes. I'm angry. I'm resentful. I'm hateful. I'm... Ugh. I get there. And then somebody brings up Psalm 130. Yeah, maybe I was working on the psalm that week. You know, I'd be like, well, you know what? There's actually four stanzas, and they actually ascend. And actually, if you do it, if you look at it, and then you've seen this happen to me, where all of a sudden, I'm like, it's like the light returns to my eyes. Like, I'm, I'm talking about Jesus again. That's right, I'm talking. That's right, I'm not Jesus. What am I down about? What, 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 I, want, I want to be set free now. I've got life. In other words, this journey that's here in this, in, this, in this poem, I think it's a journey we take all the time. This is a journey that we can be taking. This, this little poem is, being, is a gift to you. It's a gift to you. Uh, I was re- talking to a friend recently about how one of the ways you can use the Bible, use the scriptures when you're, when you're feeling anxious or frustrated or when you're in that low place of guilt. Well, this is a perfect example of this. To read each line very carefully. Read the whole thing through real quick and then read each line. Just pause over it for a minute. And just, or two minutes. And ask yourself, how, would I, how could I say that again in a way I understand it? And go through the poem, line by line, just restating it in your words, saying it the way you would say it. How would you talk about being in depths? Maybe you just talk about being low. But whatever your language is, right? How would you talk about God? And, how we, and, and what you see about him that invites you into his love? And what does it look like for you to double? And then as you read this slowly, as you spend just 15 minutes reading just this poem and meditating on it, you're inviting the Holy Spirit take you on an ascent journey. That's what you are. You are. You are doing the work with him. You're plodding in the steps. And you're, and you're doing it. And the reason I want to encourage you so much is because of the reward at the end. <laughs> because of the way we can be caught into and God is inviting us into this journey. Don't be afraid of the low places. Don't be afraid of the depths. Don't be afraid of what you see. Sometimes I get afraid of what I see. I get that. But even when I get afraid, there's still a chance to open up this journey again and start moving, start moving towards worship, life, and hope. <laughs> Let's pray. Oh, Father. Oh, Father. I thank you for your words. And we thank you that these ancient poets spent the time writing this stuff. And, and you filled him, you filled him. <laughs> Father, I pray you would take us on this journey that you took this man. And Father, some of us, that means we really need the work of conviction again. We need that work to see who and what we are. And we resist that. We don't like it. Forgive us for that. But lead us into places that, that start this journey for us. And then, Father, will you carry us through it? Will you tenderly in your love? Will you do that? Father, I pray for stanza four to happen to all of us. <laughs> and that, we would, that we would come to a point of explosive joy and a vision of your son loving us in our sin, dying for us. 
and setting us free. Father, we live in a hopeless age. And hope seems like a fantasy or a hallmark sentiment or a dream. But I don't really care what the rest of the world thinks. I'm ready here to sit here and wait, wait for you, Father. Wait for you to do what you're going to do. And I'm, I'm excited. Will you, will you, I don't know, just build up some expectation, build up our expectations anew about what, if we're, when we're sold out for you, the kind of things that you do. <laughs> the kind of things that you do when you make us sold out are amazing. And we love you. So we ask for these words to have life with us this week. In Jesus' name, amen.